kingdom of heaven. It's written to the Jews concerning the kingdom of heaven. That's what the purpose of it is. And in chapter 25, we are learning some key... I think i got to echo a little loud. There's information about what eschatologically is going to happen after the tribulation. So, how many have learned stuff about the eschatology as we have gone through it for the last year? Um, hopefully we can grasp some of those things. The, what we're going to be dealing with now is, in my mind, a little more difficult, number one. And number two, I can be sympathetic to people getting confused about judgments. Now, this morning we are going to just give you an introduction to the judgments of God that are eschatological. There are two judgments talked about, one after the millennial kingdom, or one after the tribulation, and one after the millennial kingdom. Now, the problem is with these judgments, the problem is they're doing, they're both of them are a final division amongst people. How many understand that? So, during the tribulation, the church is gone, right? Well, one person hopes it is. Uh, this ain't no tribulation going on. Uh, this is no millennial going on right now. This is called the church age. The church age will end, I believe, at the rapture of the church. So the church is going to be gone. God says in 2 Thessalonians, He will come and take, come in the clouds and take away His bride with Him. And we will meet Him in the clouds and then forever be with the Lord. We'll never leave Him after that. We will be with Him face to face. Different locations, but face to face. Reality is the church is gone. Then there is seven years of tribulation. Those seven years start with a treaty, if you will, between the Antichrist and the Jews to, to create or to build the what? Temple. The temple is built, and halfway through the tribulation, the Antichrist claims himself to be God in the temple. That's called the desolation. Abomination of desolation. At that moment, he breaks the treaty with Israel, embraces the whole world, and believing Jewish people, understand this, believing Jews scatter out of Jerusalem because they want to kill him. That happened, that's all the way through the tribulation. While that's going on, Bad things are happening. You know, you, you know the move. Bad things are happening. Bad things, right? Bad things. Horrible things. At the second half of the tribulation, there's worse than the world has ever seen or has, has ever seen or will ever see happens in the second half of the tribulation. Now, some people believe that um, they are called mid-tribulationalists. They believe that Christ is coming midway through the tribulation to take the church away. And the reason they believe that is because the second half is the worst part. And it's definitely called the wrath of God is happening. 
And that's according to um, uh, Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. He saves us from the wrath of God. That's what the text says. And we believe that that wrath of God is the whole tribulation if you're a pre-tribulationalist. A mid-tribulationalist believe the really bad wrath of God is in the second half. And they're right. It is. The worst part is the second half. So, to be honest with you, um, I'm a pre-tribulationalist. The church is a pre-tribulationalist in their constitution. By the way, their constitution is simply their theological statement of the church. Amen? And so, we are pre-tribulationalists, but we understand and sympathize with mid-tribulationalists. They have the, it's the same ideas and everything. It's just when it happens. That's all that's different. Um, and the re, it, it, that doesn't matter. Now, we have an issue if it's a post-tribulationalist. <laughs> then we've got a problem. <laughs> um, but regardless, the church is gone at the end of the tribulation. And at the end of the tribulation, there's, this, there's these days, and, and I'll bring you a chart next in two weeks, while I'm in Hades next week. <laughs> The issue is, um, the church, or the at the end of the tribulation, there's this gap of time, like 75 days or something like that. And what has gone on is the, the whole world is in absolute chaos by the end of the tribulation. Most, many of the people are dead. There are dead bodies floating in the seas, in the rivers. The Bible says the rivers and waters are flowing red with blood. It's just, it's gross, it's disgusting, it's horrible. And God gives Christ the keys to his kingdom, quote unquote. Does that make sense? He now comes down to earth, and this is his kingdom. Now, just think about this. He comes down to earth, and this is his kingdom. I never thought about this until this moment. This is pretty awesome. So this might be, I want you to research this. But how many of you have read Genesis chapter 1? And God, I mean, most people, most Christians say, okay, I better start in Genesis 1. By the time they get to Genesis 5, they're like, all right, I need to go somewhere else. And when they get to Leviticus, they're certainly in something else. But the point of the matter is this. There are many people who believe that God created the earth without form and void and it was just utter chaos. How many have heard that? Does the Bible kind of lend that way when it says, created the world without form and void? Okay, sure. So many people believe that the world was in chaos before he created the waters, the land, the animals, the humanity, all that. Now, whether you agree with it or not, it doesn't matter. Christ, I'm wondering if Scripture said that because there's a lot of similarities between the creation of the world and the recreation in the millennial kingdom. How many understand that? Because after creation, man was put in the Garden of Eden where everything was perfect. At the end of the tribulation, God's going to take the saved and put them into the world that is perfect. There are certain similarities there. Matter of fact, there are 
people, my, there's a book, I don't know how, it, it's a big book. My book's right here, so I don't know how thick it is, how many understand that, all right? But it's, it's about how that, his name's Beale, B-E-A-L-E, he's a covenant theologian, so you have to be careful, but he believes that the garden was a type or a much like or a foreshadowing of the millennial kingdom. And to be honest, there are many similarities. Can I give you one because it's part of my work dissertation? <laughs> one of the similarities is, remember when the Bible says God placed Adam in the garden to till and to keep the garden. How many remember that? That word till, or in some versions cultivate, is the word abad. We find that word throughout Scripture, but we find it specifically in, uh, in, in the later part, or in Leviticus. And guess where the word is used in Leviticus? That same word is used of the priests serving in the tabernacle. By the way, folks, in the millennial kingdom, we will all serve the Lord. That word serve is found at before the fall. In creation, during the mid-range, if you will, when it's a chaotic mess, it's also found in the tabernacle. It's also found in the church. And it's also found in the millennial kingdom. And I will argue it's also found in heaven. We serve God. Amen. That term serve. And so... There are similarities, and there are a lot of similarities. The killing of the animals, right, at the fall. Sacrificial system. The regardless, the point of the matter is this. I see there's a similarity between before God created the land and, and, and separated the waters and did all that, it, it says, without form and void. I will tell you this, when Jesus puts His feet on the Mount of Olives, this world's going to be a mess. It's going to be an absolute disaster mess. It's going to stink. There is one, some people believe it's a meteor, whatever it is, a star falls from heaven and destroys a third of the world. Life. I mean, it's going to be gross. How many have ever butchered a deer? Let that butchered deer sit for five days in a warm sun. Now, I want you to go eat that deer. How many would say, you're nuts, I'm out of here. No, it's gross, it's sick, it's disgusting. Folks, it's not just one thing, it's a third of the animal life dies. Rotting, flesh, just gross. And there's this sense where, Jesus, where God says, okay, there's your kingdom. So what does God do? And, and how many understand this? So what does God do? Well, Christ comes down. He, he stands on the mountain. It splits in half. River runs through it. There's, there's a lot of things that happen there. But the point is, He's got to set things right. Does He not? He needs to come in and set things right. By the way, this is not much different than wars and rumors or wars and, and, and fightings that happen, whether it's in, 
in Christ's time or in now, when you go in and conquer a city, is it all nice and beautiful and ready to walk into a new kingdom? Absolutely not. Jerusalem was conquered like 700 and some times. It's just ridiculous what's going on. I mean, it, it, how many remember AD 70? Think about AD 70. Here's, and by the way, this is why covenant theologians say that, well, this is AD 70. I disagree with them. But there are similarities to AD 70. Here, there's a, 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 a country, Romans, surrounding Jerusalem, not letting people in for two to three years. 69 A.D. They started it, and they would let people in. They wouldn't let anybody out. Tradition tells us by Josephus' hand, how many know who Josephus is? Josephus is a Jewish general who was caught by the Romans and then became the Roman poet for them, a Roman writer, historian. He says that there, were, there was a woman in there. You couldn't cook food. First of all, there was not any food. And if you cook it and there was no food in the study of Jerusalem, what would happen? You'd probably be killed for it. So what they would do is they'd boil all their food. If you boil something, it doesn't smell as much as if you would grill it. How many love? I just think about this. Getting home from Sunday afternoon and grilling a steak with just the right amount of fat all the way around it. Can you smell that? How many can smell that right now? Yeah, In your mind, right? Well, that's the same thing that happened in Jerusalem. They boiled it. And literally, there's a story of a woman boiling her child for food. That's how destitute and depraved that city was just rancid. Now, how many would like to have the new kingdom there? Where did all the feces go? For three years! It's crazy, messy, gross. That same, have, have I given you a good enough biblical picture? That's what Christ comes to. The world's a mess. There are both saved and unsaved. The unsaved want to kill the saved. Christ shows up. I can just imagine. Ruh -ruh. Now we're in trouble. And they are. When He comes, He has to separate between the Christians and the unchristians. Is that not true? He has to do that. He has to purge the unsaved away from the Christians. This is to be a millennial perfect kingdom. Here's the problem. Even during the millennial kingdom, there are babies being born, and those babies, some of them, do not come to know the Lord. So in the millennial kingdom, you have this perfect reign by Christ with a rod of iron. Externally, people are obeying. Internally, they are not. How many get it? And so by the end of the thousand-year reign of Christ, there's this large mass of professing Christians. 
The devil then is released, and you're going to see all this in the scriptures that I'm going to give you. The devil is released, he grabs a hold of them, and he makes war against Christ again. Now that war against Christ ends in Christ wiping them out. Then there is another judgment at the end of the millennial kingdom. Why? Because they're saved and unsaved together again. How many can see that, wow, okay, saved and unsaved after the tribulation, saved and unsaved after the millennial kingdom, there's got to be a separating on both counts. How many would agree with that? There is. And therefore, it makes it difficult to know which judgment we're always talking about. How many get that? It makes it somewhat difficult. And so there is some difficulty in this, and we're going to walk through it together, and hopefully we'll understand in the end, and you'll have your own interpretation and understanding of what this is trying to say. Because I will tell you this, I would love for everything to be black and white. It's not always black and white. Wouldn't life be easy if it was all black and white? How many think life would be easy if it was all black and white? Raise your hand, please. Okay, I have three people that believe that. The reality is, the more you know God, the more black and white things become. Regardless, that's for another day. The judgment, the first judgments of Christ. The Bible says in verse 31, But when the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all his angels with him, and he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one another, uh, separate them from one another, as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right hand, and the goats on his left. And the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you are, who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you, from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry, and feed you, and thirsty, or thirsty, and give you something to drink? And when did we see you a, a stranger? and invite you in, or naked, and clothe you? When did we seek you? When did we see you sick, or in prison, and come to you? The king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. Then he will also say to those on his left, Depart from me, ye cursed ones, into the eternal fire, which he has been which has been prepared for the devil and his angels for i was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat i was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink i was a stranger and you did not invite me in naked and you did not clothe me sick and in prison and you did not visit me then they themselves also will answer lord when did you see you when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not take care of you. Then he will answer them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. 
These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So in this text, by the way, there are a lot of questions. First of all, isn't it interesting that the questioned in in this story, the questions are saying, when did we see you? They questioned when it happened, right? They didn't question if they did those things, but when did we do it to you? Both of them say that. Both of them have questions. Another question, look at verse 34. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come you who are blessed of my father. So who is he talking about? He's talking about the sheep, right? Inherit the kingdom prepared for you when? Since when? Before the foundation of the world. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. What does that mean? What is the kingdom right now? If Here's the deal. We, believe, we are premillennialists here. We believe that the millennial kingdom is a real thing. And it will be on this earth. Was that millennial kingdom prepared before the foundation of the world? If it is prepared before the foundation of the world, what is he talking about? How was it prepared? In the mind of God? Or actual, practical? How many get this? And here's why I'm going this way. I just want you to start thinking about these things and questioning. Number one, did Jesus Christ go and prepare a place for us? Yes or no? Yes. Is there a prepared place in heaven for us? Yes. When did that get prepared? Anybody? What's that? Okay. Right? Absolutely. Here's the problem. There, there's an issue whether it's practically, because we are, we are spiritualizing, quote unquote, this text when he says, I prepared it from the foundation of the world. How, when did he prepare it? That millennial kingdom. It has to be in the mind of the, of the Creator. Amen. It has to be. It, it's, a, it's not literal. Because what's the world right then and now? We're ta- what we're talking about. When Christ comes back, what is the world then? It's destroyed. It's a mess. So it has to be talking um, figuratively about it's been prepared before the foundation of the world in the mind of God. How many get this? It can't be practical. Now, Jesus... The kingdom that you're talking about in heaven or in eternity in heaven, that is being prepared when? And it's after the ascension. He says so, does he not? I go to do what? Prepare a place for you. How many see that these things are intricately, we've really got to look at it and study it, not just flippantly say, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, 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 no. Let's hang on and read through the text. How many see the questions you can ask on this?
Certainly. All right, another question. Why in the world are Christians referred to as sheep? Are goats just that ugly? Or are sheep more ugly and that's more fitting? <laughs> so is it a fair question? Let me ask you this. In the Old Testament, were sheep and goats both sacrificed, sometimes interchangeably? Yeah. Let me ask you this. Has Jesus ever been called a goat? What is Jesus Christ referred to as? The shepherd? Lamb of God? The paschal lamb? Right? The perfect lamb of God? What are we as Christians in Christ? Correct? Again, it's just another question I want you to think about. Here's the problem. We go through these texts and we just overread them and don't even think about what we're saying or what the text is saying. It's like a, how many have ever heard of, and I know we hardly ever have it here, special music. How many know what special music is? Nobody knows? <laughs> special music is when someone comes up and sings a special, Right? I asked my wife this, and I think it's true. How many times is the special music singer concerned about hitting the right notes and not about what the message is trying to say? I have been in multiple practices for special music. When I was in Wapaka, I, we had special music at least once a month. I had two teenage young ladies that would sing with me uh, quite often. And then I would sing with Pat and other people. And it would be a lot of practice. But why was it being practiced? It was being practiced to hit the right notes. It was being practiced to sound good. Now, I'm not saying that's bad. But what about the message? The reason I say that is I have family members who are anti-Calvinistic and I've heard them in the sing, special music, a Calvinistic song. <laughs> oh, they sang it beautifully. Hold it. There's a disconnect here. How many get this? It's a complete disconnect. We do that when we read. Oh, I've heard this before, so I'm just going to rattle it on. Okay, yeah, 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 yeah. Read intently. There's things you are missing. Amen. But when the Son of Man comes in His glory, let's just do this for a second, and then we're going to go, we're, we're going to show you in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, other passages that talk about exactly what's going on here. We're going to go to Matthew 13 and see some, some parables that are, oh yeah, I get it, okay. And we're going to go to Daniel 7 which was already read. Well, oh yeah, there, there it is. We'll go to Revelation chapter 21. 20 and 21. See what's going on there. Because we want the whole Scripture and see where all this is headed. Folks, 
this is not the first and only time he talks about this issue. Amen. And we're going to see what it looks like. But before we do that, let's let's look quickly and in English, we're in English, we're going to see this text. The Bible says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory. Who is the Son of Man? Who is it? Say it out loud. Come on. We we all are brothers and sisters in Christ here. Amen. We all say the wrong things and the right things at the wrong and right times. So let's just blurt it out. Can we do that? Can't even do that. <laughs> Doesn't work. All right, here we go. Who is the Son of Man? Jesus Christ. That one's not hard. Jesus Christ. I love it. When we go into <laughs> Genesis chapter 1, everybody does this. You go to Genesis chapter 1, the first verse, and then you go all the way to Revelation chapter 21, the last verse. Who is talked about in both the first and the last part of the Bible? God. In the beginning. All right. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, I think is what it says. Something like that. And it doesn't matter. The point is, both, and they're all focused on that. But here's the problem. It's great to focus on God. He is the beginning and the end. He is the Alpha and Omega. But what did God do? In the beginning, God... I'm going to argue, He worked. In the beginning, God worked. Here's the same thing. But when the Son of Man, what? What does He do? Okay, this is Jesus when He what? What's the work? What's the action? When He comes. Well, we really don't have a choice here, do we? Jesus is coming back to where? Where is He coming from? Heaven. He's coming from heaven. Why do we know that? He's already ascended there. He's coming from heaven to earth after the mess. It's abundantly clear in just those words. Jesus, when the Son of Man comes, how? In His glory. So, comes tells us where He's coming from, right? Where it is. In His glory tells us how He's coming. Now, just think about this. And this is, really, this is so sad. The first time Jesus came, did He come? How did He come? Oh my goodness. He came as a crying poopy diaper in a in a ugh, in a cow trough. A manger is a cow trough. That's what we call it today. How many get that? How many know what a cow trough is? None of you do. Okay, my wife will love this. Every one of you are going to take a week of feeding our cows. And watering them. You go to the smelly, stinky cow trough full of sometimes maggots. Why is that? Food that gets left over. The, the, the watering trough 
we have one trough of water that the cows will not drink. You go in there and one's gone, the other one's still away up in the air. What in the world? But it's not, how many would love to be born in a barn? The aroma is just pleasant. What I'm trying to say is this. The first time Jesus came, He came to a mess. But He came as a humble baby to a mess. How many understand that? It was dirty. It was dark. It was dank. It was gross. Does He deserve that? No, He did it for you and me. He's coming again, but it's going to be worse. He came there as a suffering servant baby. Now He's coming as King. We all want to be kings. Yeah, the King of my kingdom. I walk into a pristinely clean house and, and pristinely well-cooked steak and pristine this and pristine that. That's not how Jesus comes. He came as a suffering servant into a dark, dank, smelly place. And He's coming again to a world of complete worse than a barn. In essence, you could say, Jesus needs to recreate the world. He's got to fix it back up because of what humanity has done. And how does He come? According to the text, how does He come? In glory. Where do we get a picture of that? Jesus is coming in His glory. Well, I will tell you, the barn wasn't the glory. <laughs> but there was a time in Christ's life where His glory did shine. When was that? The Mount of Transfiguration. God's glory was seen. Christ's glory was all over. And what did they do? Oh man, they wanted to work for Him. I tell you what, this is so cool. What did Peter want? Hey, we got to build you a tabernacle. we got to build a booth. He wanted to serve immediately. Why? Because the great glory of God. Was He talking that way before the glory shone? No, but He is then. So there's something grandeur. There's something magnificent. There's something bright. There's something explosive. There's something grand about the glory of God. And He's coming with His glory. I have a weak expression of what we think it might look like. How many have seen that? By the way, this is a sunset from the Golan Heights. Anybody know where that's at? Israel. How many see when you see rays of sun coming through? Oh, he's coming again. Huh, really? Don't we think that way? Then we should. I think that's why God puts it that way. Because that's our minds. I'm just, I don't think it's wicked. He, by the way, it's going to be better than that. But he's giving us a glimpse, right? So he's coming in his glory. Why is he using the glory term? Why is He coming in grandeur? Why is He coming not as a suffering servant, 
Because he's coming as a what? A conquering king. In our minds, we picture it as a white horse holding his sword with all his soldiers behind him. Right? Like Titus when he brought back things from Jerusalem into Rome. Absolutely. Now, I can't give you exactly what that's going to look like, but it is going to be His glory. And what else is going to be happening? Look what the text says. With what? With His angels. With His angels. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and with the angels with Him. This is fantastic. By the way, where is He coming to? Earth. Let's get more specific. Jerusalem. He's coming to the Mount of Olives. This is, in essence, triumphal entry, take two, but it's like awesome entry now. How many get the picture? Here's all these angels streaming from heaven. God in all of His glory. Jesus Christ in all of His glory. God has sent Him now to be the King of this world. To set it in straight. To get it right. His glory is shining. The angels are behind Him. And they're swooping down into the area of Jerusalem. Can you get that mental picture? That's awesome. That's what the... Then the text says this. Then, look what it says. But when the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the angels with Him, that's Jesus, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Okay. What does the word then mean? Anytime you, were, you use the word ten, then, it involves what? Time, right? It's time. So we then he will sit on his glorious throne. Where is this throne? We've already discussed it. He's he's coming from heaven to earth, and then he's sitting on his glorious throne. Anybody see a problem with that? Not if you're a dispensationalist. If you're not, that's a problem. Because in their mind, he's sitting on the throne of heaven. Hold, 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 hold it. This throne is not in heaven, and you can't make it be there. You can't. His glorious throne is here on earth. It's also called the Davidic throne. Never in all of Scripture is the Davidic throne ever talked about in heaven. Never. That's what it's talking about here. And by the way, that word glorious throne, you'll see that again. So then he will sit. Then he will sit. Then time he, Christ, will sit. What does that mean? He will sit. What happens when 
Let me ask you this. When I am done, I will go and do what? I don't preach sitting down. Can you imagine a short person sitting and preaching behind a pulpit? You'd have to have Muppets up there or something. Reality is, His work is done. Or, what does a judge do? When he sits there in a court of law, what is he doing? He's sitting and he's passing judgment. Is he not? Christ, when he sits on his glorious throne, what's going to happen? Well, and all the nations will be gathered before him. So why in the world are angels coming? Look at the term. Look at, um, we're all using English, and so we're going to stay there. All the nations. What does that mean? Okay, that's not hard, Pastor. These are really easy. I, I know they are, but I think we miss them a lot. All the nations will be gathered. What is that? What kind of verb is that? Let me ask you. All the nations will gather or all the nations will be gathered? Is there a difference? Yeah. All the nations will be gathered. Assumingly, by whom? All the angels. The angels are there to gather. That, that, that phrase there, will be gathered, is a passive phrase. Someone's doing the gathering. We'll find that out in Matthew chapter 13. We'll be gathered together before Him. And then He, who's that? So all the nations, the world, is all together now. And He will separate them from one another. As the sheep separates, as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He'll put the sheep on His right and the goats on His left. And by the way, why the right and left? Has anybody ever asked that question? Why the right or left? I will tell you this. You can go home and study that because I'm not going to answer it because we're not there yet in our text. But Charmin has something to do with it. All right. <clears throat> Let's keep going. Now, so Matthew chapter 20, verse 30 and 31 say, and the, eight, and the sign... This is chapter 24, right? Matthew chapter 24. We're going to go to all these verses. We're going to look at these things. Then the, son of, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. Well, of course He's going to appear in the sky because He's in His glory, right? And He's with all these angels. All His angels. By the way, it says all His, or his with His angels. The, assuming it's, it's all of His angels. But the point is, He'll appear in the sky and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds in the sky with power and great glory. Is this in chapter 24 depicting what chapter 25 is talking about? Yes or no? Absolutely. Absolutely. With power and great glory. We already talked. Where's His power? Well, there you go. His arm is His angels. Amen. Does that show power when you come with a huge amount of soldiers? 
power and great glory, and He will send forth His angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together His elect from the four winds, from one end of the sky to another. Those angels are gathering, it says in this text, the, the elect. It says in this text, all nations, and then He separates. Now, does that make one wrong and one right? Yes or no? No, is there, is there, a, is there a, a, a fighting between chapter 24 and chapter 25? There's not a fighting, there's just a focus on one of the groups that they are collecting. How many understand that? Focuses on the elect. By the way, it's not me who calls them this, this is God who calls. What does He call Christians in this text? Right there, right behind me. The elect. Again, that's a passive verb. Let's go to another one. We did this, we went through this one the last couple of weeks. Now after a long time, the master of the slaves comes and settles accounts. This is exactly the same picture. Christ is coming to settle accounts. Matthew chapter 19. And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you that you who have followed me in the regeneration when the Son of Man will sit on what? His glorious throne. You also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. This where it gets a little interesting. He is sitting on... Okay, so you shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Who is he talking about? The disciples, yes. Twelve thrones, they will be judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Well, hold it. Is heaven for Israel or is it for the church? Trick question. Yes! It's for all those who have trusted Christ. Amen. Heaven is for all those out that are in Christ. By the way, are Old Testament saints in Christ? They were bought with the bloodshed of Christ, yes. After the fact. The reality is this. The Son of Man will sit on the throne. You also will sit upon twelve thrones judging Israel. We get a glimpse of millennial kingdom right there. How? Who's going to be ruling and reigning with them, with Christ? The apostles. Who are, where are the apostles going to be? In Jerusalem, ruling over the 12 tribes of Jerusalem, of, of the Jews, of Israel. Does that make sense? That's, it's a, there's a millennial thing. Zechariah chapter 14, verse 5. You will flee by the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains will reach Azel. Yes, you will flee just as you fled before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then, then, look at that word again. After you flee, well then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with Him. What is that talking about? This is Old Testament. What is it saying? It's saying, this is, this is the tribulation and the coming of Christ right there. They will flee from, from Jerusalem. Why? Persecution. But then what's going to happen? When the Lord comes back, 
He's going to come. The Lord, my God, will come. And all the holy ones with Him. Who's that? What is an angel called many, many times? They're holy angels. We're not talking about the ones in Los Angeles. Right? Daniel 7, which we just read. I don't have, I'm not going to go to that one first. What about Revelation chapter 20 and 21? I want to go there. So take your Bibles with me and turn to Revelation chapter 20. <clears throat> then I saw. <laughs> Where do we get this word then? What does it have a meaning of? Time. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven holding the key of the abyss. You know what? Let's start in verse 17 of chapter 19. That will be better. Then I can catch you up. Then I saw... There's just too much here. Verse 11. Then And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. He has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood. His name is called the Word of God. The armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has the name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. What's that talking about? Who's writing this? John. What's his perspective? He's in heaven looking at this. So it's a heavenly perspective. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun and he cried out with a loud voice saying to all the birds which fly in the mid-heaven, come, assemble for the great supper of God. By the way, please make note of this. From his mouth comes a what? Verse 15. Sharp sword. It's different as we read. So Watch it carefully. Then I saw the angel standing in the sun, and he crowed with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in the midheaven, in other words, the sky, Come, assemble for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders, and the flesh of mighty men, and the flesh of horse, and of those who sit on them, with, and with the flesh of all men, both free and slaves, small and great. And I saw the beast and the king of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him. Are you kidding me? Really? Who sat on the horse and against his army. Someone thinks they can fight against God. And the beast was seized. Oh, imagine that. And with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse and all the birds were filled with their flesh. 
What is this talking about? This is what many people disaffectionately call the Battle of Armageddon. At the end of the, of the tribulation, where God wipes out the army that is fast surrounding Jerusalem. He wipes them out. He kills them. By the way, it's called in Megiddo. Does anybody know where that? That's in north part of Israel. Let's keep reading. So this is when he comes and he destroys this, these people with a sword from his mouth. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven holding the keys of the abyss and a great chain in his hand and he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan and bound him for a thousand years. Why? So look at the word first verse. Then I saw. Do you see that? Then, this is, okay, what's happened, Jesus comes down in this sense with, as a man with coming fighting, is what he's coming with, and all of his angels with him. To do what? To slay the, the guys arrayed against the Christians, the Jews. And then what happens? Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven holding the keys of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of him and he bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him. Anybody who says Satan is chained but he can do things by himself the way he wants to right now anyway because we're in the millennial kingdom now is nuts. They're crazy. He's not only bound, but they threw him in the abyss, they shut it, and they sealed it. So that he would not deceive the nations any longer. So the very thing that you're saying he's doing, Christ put him there so he couldn't do it. It really bothers me. <laughs> oh, by the way, I had someone yell, I, I preached this message at a church recently, and I got word right away after I finished, well, these are just uh, stinking uh, straw men. Arguments. Read the Bible. Satan is not only chained, he's thrown into the abyss. He's not only chained and thrown into the abyss, he's also sealed in the abyss. For what reason? So he can't do anything with people anymore. So this argument that this is the millennial kingdom and Satan, he's got a long chain and he can, he can deceive people is anti-Bible. Because the Bible says he can't. Not just because of the chain, but the abyss and the ceiling and the purpose. By the way, if he is out here right now on a long chain hurting you, that's not the same Jesus I serve. Because he failed. It, it's ridiculous. It really is. And after these things, he must be released for a short time. Okay, so he's going to be put somewhere for a thousand years, and then he's going to be released. Why? What in the world is that talking about? How else can we deal with this? Well, we have two options. We can spiritualize the whole thing saying all oh, this is just a figure of, of, of cartoon ideas so that we can think about it. And it means something totally different. 
Well, you can go that way and no one can prove you wrong because it's all from your thumb you're getting it. Or you can just take it literally and say, hey, I don't know what all this means, but I will tell you what it text says as it's saying it. Amen. And the text says this. It says he's going to be bound so that he can't do anything against anybody for a thousand years and then he will be eventually released after that said thousand years. So what is this 7,000 or 1,000? What is this thousand years without Satan around? Oh, are you kidding me? Satan will no longer be around and here's why. Jesus is. And he's king. And it's exactly what we're talking about. Let's keep going. I'm really, I'm really excited about this. All right, here we go. Then I saw thrones, and they that sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the Word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or the image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So not only is there a judgment, there's a resurrection. So a lot is going on here. When Jesus comes back, it's not like, okay, He's here, here, let's go. There, there's a lot going on. When He comes back, He only wipes out a whole army. He has Satan bound and put somewhere where He can't do anything for a thousand years. He resurrects the saints during the tribulation time. They come to life. And the rest that did not, by the way, but then the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years was completed. This is the first resurrection. Literally, we have a first resurrection and now we're going to have a first judgment. They're happening almost simultaneously, right in the same time frame. Okay. The rest of the dead did not come to life. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part of the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with Him how long? A thousand years. So in this we have Jesus coming. Do you see this? In chapter 19, verses 11 through chapter 20, verse 6. Jesus comes. He wipes out the army. He sits on His throne. He judges. He resurrects. And then he reigns for a thousand years. All of that is found in this text. Now, you can say it doesn't exist, but you're a liar and a moron. I just read it. It exists. And it doesn't only exist in our English versions, it exists in the copies of the copies. And the, frankly, it existed in the originals which have been copied and we have. So, when the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from prison. I don't know if you know this, but many churches today are preaching that we are in the perfect millennial kingdom right now. Joe Biden being our president. When the thousand years are completed, 
Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. And fire came down from heaven and devoured them. Oh, now we have another army, this time led by Satan himself, that gathers and surrounds around, I'm going to call Jerusalem. And what happens? You see, before it was a sword out of the mouth of Christ. Now it's fire from heaven. Do you see the difference? Anybody see the difference or is it just me? So that one, the first one, the, uh, the, the tribulational battle was won by a sword. The millennial battle was won by fire. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also. And they will be tormented day and night. How long? Forever and ever. He wants to make it abundantly clear he's done. Then, look at the term. Then I saw what? Look what the text says. A great white throne and Him who sat on it from, whence, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead the great and the small standing before the throne. The books were open, and another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. And death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Do you see? There's, going, there's resurrection happening. How many see that? What's important to notice is was there already a resurrection that happened? Yes or no? Yes. What are those people doing? Serving God during that thousand years, whatever that word may mean, right? Now, now Satan has been loosed. Satan has been conquered. And now he's thrown into the pit forever. Gone. Forever in fire and brimstone. Now, Jesus is bringing out all these other people. Do you see this? Do you see the, what's going on? All right. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. What are death and Hades? So, the, 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 the abode of the dead, we could call it. They were thrown into the lake of fire, for this is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Okay. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorneth her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and He will dwell among them, and they will be His people, and God Himself will be among them. 
and He will wipe away every tear from their eye, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And He who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And He said, Write all these words, for these words are faithful and true. Then He said to me, It is done. I am Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things and I will be his God and he will be my son. But, I, but for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and all liars, their part will be in the lake of, which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, came and spoke with me saying, Come, here, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her brilliance was like a very costly stone as a stone of crystal clear jasper. And then he goes in, and he starts explaining the eternal heaven. Now, does John give us a prophesying chain of events? Yes or no? Yes. I will say this. If he does, and I believe he does, there is a tribulation. There is going to be judgment. He's going to separate the Christians from the unsaved. He's going to resurrect the saved, according to the text. He's going to be king and rule over with a rod of iron for a thousand years. He's then going to release Satan for a short time. There will be a final battle again at the end of the millennial kingdom, according to the text. And that battle will be won with fire from heaven destroying them. He will then have another judgment. And in that judgment, He is judging according to the text, the wicked. But there also is a separation where the wicked go to where? Where? Hell. And the righteous will go to heaven. Again, there's a separation. Here's what we have. And this is what makes it difficult. We will see in the Old Testament, Daniel chapter 7, and multiple other passages, both at the end of the tribulation and at the end of the millennial kingdom, there is a separation of the good and the evil. There is a separation. There is a mixture of good and evil during the tribulation. Yes or no? That gets taken care of at the first judgment. There is a mixture of good and evil during the millennial kingdom. Yes or no? Absolutely. That gets taken care of at the end of it also. The issue is, because of the similarities between them, they get confused and some people conflate them together. How many understand this? I am going to argue that there are two judgments. Both judgments do the same thing, but they are at different times for different reasons of what had just happened. Does that make sense? In other words, 
the tribulation, at the end of it, there were saved and unsaved together. God separates them. He, pushes, he puts the saved into His millennial kingdom, and He puts the unsaved where? Fire and brimstone, eternal hell. At the end of the millennium, Jesus releases Satan. Not, there is, at, in, during the millennial kingdom, there are saved and unsaved. And He releases Satan, and He brings them together and said, hey, let's go conquer Jesus once and for all. This time, God sends fire from heaven and destroys them. But then He does something else. He sends the unsaved, where? And Satan. To eternal hell. And He sends the Christians to eternal heaven. So, this is why we have to, when we study these things, remember there are two judgments at least that take place. And it's clear in the text. And those two judgments, although they're for different specific people, they're still about sinners and saved. They are. They're about separating. It's about cleansing. Matthew chapter 13. We're going to go through that the next time I'm here. Lord willing, maybe we won't be here. How many would love that? But Matthew 13 talks about this very thing. Bringing in a dragnet. Keeping the good fish. Getting rid of the bad fish. And, 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 and so, which one is that? Which judgment is that? Is that what people call the uh, sheep and goat? Or is it the great white throne? By the way, did Jesus ever call the judgments the sheep and goat judgment? Yeah, Mr. Zaner is absolutely correct. No, he didn't. The only reason we call it that is because there's two judgments, and we got they're similar, but they, they are distinctive in time. And so we need to, and so what does he say? He uses a grammar. How many love grammar? My wife just beams from ear to ear when I say that word. It's almost like, it's, it's like me when, when you say Twix, it's like, oh yeah. With her, it's grammar, and she's like, oh yeah. <laughs> Anyways, the reality is, the Bible uses a simile to say, God is going to separate the unsaved from the saved. The problem is, and this is where I have a struggle, He separates them at the end of the tribulation. No question about it. He also separates them at the end of the millennium. That's what He does. And so, I have to be so careful when I read Old Testament texts and all the other texts dealing with these judgments, which one is this? How many understand that? I'm absolutely dispensational. But, and I'll show you that, matter of fact, I will bring a paper that will be filled with the distinctions between the two of why they have to be separate. The problem is, the whole basis of both of them is separation. That's the whole basis. I'm separating the unsaved forever from the saved. Is that a true statement? 
At the end of the millennium, does Jesus Christ put all the saved in heaven and all the unsaved in eternal hell? Yes. He already has done that before in the tribulation, at the end of the tribulation. He separated all the unsaved and put them in eternal hell, and He put the believers into the millennial kingdom. He already did separation there. He's going to separate again. So, that's why it's for me a struggle. How many understand that and can respect that? I can just be honest with you. Some of these texts, they seem like they can go either way. So you've got to get into the fine, nitty-gritty details to see which one it is and which one it isn't. Do we understand? Because I believe there's two. All right. How many are excited about the next couple of weeks? How many are bored to death and you want to go to bed? <laughs> I hope you're not bored talking about the coming of Christ. Uh, if you're bored, we have a Houston moment. <laughs> All right. Um, next week, um, Mr. Zarin will be teaching or teaching during preaching. One of the two, we're not sure. And there'll be two other, or there'll be one other. I'm not sure which one yet. And so we're going to deal with that later. Uh, but that's what's going to happen. Any questions or comments? We're going to close this service. It was an introduction to what we're going to preach on. How many? How many said, man? When we went through that first verse, there's a ton there. <laughs> Ask questions, because man, it just the Bible gives it to us. We just need to be focused on Him and what He's trying to tell us. Not like most singers who want to make sure those notes are just perfect. Now, in fairness, they want to make the notes perfect so that the message is given out clearly. I pray that's the case. I don't know if that is always the case. We need to make sure the Word is clearly taught, amen, and understood. And not just generalize everything. Okay, I'm excited about it. I hope you are. I hope uh, our future is exciting to you. Because God is. The face-to-face -face meeting with God is going to be out of this world. Literally and figuratively. The face-to-face -face meeting with Christ is going to be both worldly and out of this world. I can't wait. I can't wait for that to happen. And for others to enjoy that. For there are many who do not know the Lord and they will spend eternity in hell. Mr. Zarin, can you come and close in a word of prayer, please? Let's stand and be dismissed in prayer, please. Heavenly Father, we realize that there are things in your word that we don't understand. Father, we realize that we are human beings subject to error. Father, we realize that your word is error-free, and if there's a problem with the text of the word of God, it's our problem, not yours. Father, may we rejoice in the fact that we as believers will never ever come into condemnation. Father, we are so thankful for our Lord and Savior who died and took our judgment that we deserve. Help us, Father, to live like children of the King.
Thank you for this time together in Jesus' name. Amen.